Hey, this is Stephen Jolly here. I'm the host of Melbourne Calling, a show where we interview what we think are some of the more interesting people that make up this city of ours. All these recordings are done at the Fitz Cafe in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. But most importantly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast and video was recorded. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. John, thanks for coming on the show. Um, My pleasure. It's been a long journey for you. I was just reading about back in 35 years ago, 1986, May Day, Thursday, 1st of May, 1986, you're up in a crane with Don Rust, three other... BLF members are in yeah. the crane down the in road in William Street. Street. I think you were yeah. in Market Street. Yeah. Or you were in Mar- I was in William Street, they were in yeah. Market Street. Yeah. And uh, yeah. obviously it's a time that the, the government's trying to smash the Builders' Labourers' Federation. You're a member yeah. of the Builders' Labourers' Federation. You're on that crane to try and force the builder to recognise the union. Yeah. And get our jobs back, yeah. yeah. And this is you talking in Liz Ross's great book about the deregistration of the, of the BLF. They came up the crane tower, they had gas masks on, they sprayed us with mace, cut open the grate, threw us on the floor, tied our hands behind our backs, told us there were two ways down, over the side or down the stairs. While we were lying on the ground, they were spraying more mace in our faces. They dragged us down by our hair. We were taken to Pentridge. Yeah. Now, if somebody had said to you that afternoon, that 35 years later, you'd be running the construction, you're probably the strongest union in Australia, you would have thought they were tripping. I would have thought, well, what drugs are you on? Give me some of them. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I would have thought. And like the BLF back then and the CFMEU, it's really civilised the industry. I mean, I just want to, to go over it with you for outsiders who don't get, like, what we've done in the building industry. Because when yeah, I go back to yeah. Ireland and I'm in the building industry, yeah. everyone gets a bit embarrassed. You know, you, you feel yeah, sorry yeah. for you. Yeah, it's not a proud sort of... Yeah, yeah it's yeah. totally the opposite here. So, builders' labour today, you're talking about 50 bucks an hour, pretty yeah. much, with yeah. side allowance. Yeah. And after 3.30 and weekends... Double time. Yeah. Double time. Double time. You've got 56... 50 bucks an hour travel allowance, pretty much, or close to. Superannuation, 235 a week. Incolink, which is like a redundancy yeah, thing, 100 yeah, bucks yeah, a week. Yeah. 13 weeks long service leave after 10 years. 35 degrees. You go home and get paid for it. Get paid yeah, for the yeah. day. When it's raining, stop yeah, work. Yeah. I mean, were these gifts from Jesus or the construction companies. I mean, you've been in well, that battle yeah, right from the yeah, start. Yeah. Tell, well, talk well, us through how these were won. Well, 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 some, well, well, some of them were already won before I started in the industry and, and it was won by the previous generation. And, you know, sometimes uh, some people do think it's a gift from Jesus. You know, they just all fell out of the sky and the, and the, and the employers gave it to them all out of the kindness of their heart. I mean, back then, every single thing we got uh, like, like, like the things you've described, we're all fought for. I mean, people done time. People went out in the grass, you know, in the 70s. I mean, people lost like eight weeks' wages uh, on, on the grass or on the verge of losing their houses because they fought the good fight. And, and, and that's why we enjoy these things. And I think some of the younger generation, part of our, part of our uh, culture has been we educate uh, our members to let them know how this all came about. I mean, look, New South Wales branch had a poster it was a $500 award. Back then, $500 was, was a massive amount of money. And it was asking for anyone to identify one condition that we had that the boss just gave to us that, that we didn't have to fight for. No one's ever claimed that reward, right? So every single thing we have, we've had to fight for. And, uh, and, and look, now it's a bit more civilised. The industry has just become a bit more civilised. Uh, and a lot of stuff is won by negotiation, but it's still with that threat of... You know, construction workers, we have a reputation where if we think it's unjust and it's unfair and, 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 and we're not going to cop this shit, we will withdraw our labour. Fines or no fines, um, you know, we're not slaves. As far as we're concerned, this is Australia. We're a democracy. It's supposed to be a democracy. If we want to withdraw our labour, I mean, we'll withdraw it. If they fine us hundreds of thousands of dollars, we'll say be it, you know? So, so back in the 80s, you, you, like, you, you, were, you joined the building industry when you were 19 years old. At yeah. one stage, you were working, you were an organiser, obviously, yeah, for yeah, the BLF yeah. under... Gallagher yeah, yeah. and Cummins and all that. How would you describe the differences between an organiser back then, how the industry was different, just for, yeah. the, for the young guys today and the young women yeah, today yeah. in the industry, well, look, in the look, 80s to today? Look, look, in the 80s, it was pretty... pretty like, for example, I, when I was as a labourer sweeping floors, we had 44-gallon drums on the floors. Uh, they were filled with sawdust that had been soaked in uh, Kero. So you'd sort of uh, dip your hands and you'd throw that out on the floor and you'd sweep and that dust would come up. And you'd have a cigarette in your mouth, you know? And, and, and we're on one of the, some of the safer sites in Melbourne and you sort of think... If you'd done that today, you'd probably be, you know, 
charged for an act of terrorism or something. I mean, can you can you imagine? I mean, there was no such thing as traffic management. You see traffic management now, people just take it for granted. Back then, there was no traffic management. It was just like some bobcat or trucks reversing out of a site. It was a danger to the public. It was... So, and I'm talking about 1985, you know, it was, uh, it was, when you think about it, we thought it was really good then, but when you look at it now to what it has become, I think traffic management became, when Melbourne Central was being built, uh, that's when traffic management came into, into play, and it came into play because as trucks were leaving the site for the mud on their wheels and, uh, uh, that they left on, on Latrobe Street, family in the car hit the mud and flipped up on its roof, and, that, and after that they brought in them wash... Uh, things for trucks when they're coming out so the mud's not on the... They brought in traffic management to make it safer for not only construction workers but also for the public. Uh, and you look at the things we have in place now, the barricades, the barriers on the roads to protect construction workers, the crane crews, well, that didn't exist. I mean, there was many a times where, where crane crews out in the street got collected by, by a car or a truck. So we've gone in leaps and bounds when it comes to uh, conditions, safety. Look, we, we, we had amenities then. Uh, now, obviously... Uh, all the urns are being replaced by, um, you know, straight out of the wall, uh, them zip hot water, uh, you know, a lot of pipe warmers have probably been replaced by microwaves, you know, and uh, some people are happy because like the old days, you know, many a time people put their sausages in the uh, urn <laughs> and uh, people used to wonder why the tea or the coffee tasted and someone would walk in last and just pull these uh, Kranskis out of the urn. But, um, yeah, or pull out old footy socks out of there sometimes, but I mean, look, it, it, it has come a long way. When we look at it back now, it was pretty prehistoric. You'd go to the pub at lunchtime, and I know it's sad to say, but you're down as many pots as you could in that half an hour, and then you go back to work. I mean, it was not unusual to walk into a shed and to see a bunch of construction workers at lunchtime drinking a long neck. You know, yeah. I used to do it myself. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. The thought of it now, walking into a shed to see people drinking or people have been to the pub boozing in at lunchtime, it's just, you, you can't even... Since, Imagine it. So the reason that you were up on that crane back in 86 and was that that union was way better than most of the other unions at the time. And the, lab, the yeah. Labor government at the time, the ACTU, the bosses, yeah. and unfortunately some other construction unions yeah, ganged yeah. up in the BLF. That's right, yeah. You were deregistered, you put up a hell of a fight to try and fight. But at one stage then you decided, well, we've got no choice, we've got to join into the CFMEU. What was that like when you, when you made that move into the CFMEU? It must have been a bit tough. I mean, well, I think it worked well, yeah, out probably yeah. better than a lot of people thought it was going oh, to. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, look, I mean you're here running the union now. Like. Well, we were called traders by some people back then when we, when we did it. I mean, I remember uh, uh, John Cummings. We, we, we sat down. I'll never forget it. It was a cafe underneath the, uh, the, uh, the bars in, uh, in Carlton there, you know, uh, another building that the Builders Labourers Federation saved. <laughs> uh, and I remember we were having, a, having a coffee, and, and, he, and he spoke to me about it. There had been approaches made about unifying the building industry and everyone putting aside their differences and sort of creating a better union. And at first it was a bit hard to sort of swallow because these people were our sworn enemies, you know. So, But there was a lot of good people in there that didn't like what was going on and wanted to change things. And, uh, and that's how we sort of moved forward. It was very hard because people called us traitors. I mean, I watched a movie called Michael Collins starring Liam Neeson and and I remember when he was trying to bring peace and, and independence and they called him a traitor. I thought to, every time I watched that movie, I think that's how we felt. You know, like yeah, yeah. we thought we were on the right path um, and which in the end, we, we were right. We made the right decision and we've created a super union out of it and bringing people together, people that had normally hated each other. Uh, we brought everyone together and created a good, strong union and, and no one thought it was possible um, to walk into a pub and to see people that were sworn enemies all drinking together. You know, I've seen things that I never thought I'd seen in my life. And it just shows what that sort of common, you know, common cause, a, co a common thing. And I think some people were sort of almost relieved to sort of uh, reconcile because it was like, because you weren't sort of actually the natural enemy of each other, really. We're all building know, workers. Like, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other side was, a, was the enemy, you know. We should be together fighting them and... Uh, we're all construction workers, we're all workers, and uh, so I think there was a bit of relief, uh, and people were surprised, and, and, and people went along, and, and, and look what we created. There were some people that were against it, that stood on the sidelines, you know, they're all resident narcs, threw rocks at it, and, and give every excuse why you shouldn't do it. Uh, they all fell by the wayside. Some of them, to their credit, came forward and said, look, I was against it, but, you know, I'll give you an example, Mick Lewis is no longer with us, Paul Mick Lewis, an old BL organiser. We had many an argument and a blue about it, and, and, and to his credit, he later on, a few years later, he conceded, he said it was probably the best move that was ever made, and, 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 and that he was wrong, but he conceded it, and, and so did a lot of others. 
Um, and it wasn't about conceding. It was, just, it was people like him saying that, look, you've made the right move. That sort of still... You sometimes still need that little bit of um, reassurance sometimes, mm. you know? Because mm. uh, you still get some of the old hands that you were sort of mates with. You stood on picket lines, still throwing little barbs at you. Uh, you can sell outs and... You know, and then you sort of walk away and you think, you know it's not true, but it still no, it hurts gets, when it you gets hear you. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then here from people like Mick Lewis sort of say it was a good thing that it happened and you, and you did the right thing. It, it was still, it was good to hear. It was reassuring. I just want to ask you one question about John Commons. Obviously, yeah, he yeah. led the, the move from the BLF into the CFMU. He was yeah. a crucial leader in the CFMU. And to this day, almost every building worker in Victoria has got a sticker with his face yeah, on it. There's yeah. not many people... You know, what was it like? I mean, why was he so charismatic? Why was he so respected? I mean, when he died, yeah. I mean, it's never been seen before since, you know, since then. 10,000 building workers marched behind his coffin in their own time through the streets of Melbourne to trade salt at his yeah. funeral. I mean, what was it about the man that, that inspired that confidence and loyalty? Well, he had that charisma. He was a real person. He, taught, he, he, he would take the... T it doesn't matter who it was, he had time for everyone. He, he'd sit in off you... You know, you had an era then where, where, where some union officials were a bit of that arrogance, you know, arrogant. Some have been doing it for too long. They were very arrogant. Um, where, where Johnny Cummings was just loved by everyone. He'd come on the site. I mean, you know, all the old Italians, the Greeks and everyone, they'd want to kiss him and, you know, they share their food with him. And they just loved him. He was just a living legend to them because he took the time, you know, like to the Italians, he'd finish a meeting and say, everyone capisce, you know, and then the Italians used to love him, you know. He, he was... He was um, he was just a real people sort of person. He was, um, you know, he was there for the members, and the members could see that they can see straight through. It wasn't just a job for him. He he actually cared about construction workers, yeah. and and he'd fight, and and he went to jail for him, and they knew he went to jail for him. Um, and you know, it, 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 like they say, when they made John Cummings, they break the mold. You know, like there's not many John Cummings around. Well, like when he died, I remember one of the office girls said to me, "There's no, there's no John, no, there's no other John Cummings is around. Like he was a one." One in a million, you know, yeah. and, and it's true. true. I mean, yeah. he was an absolute legend. And uh, like our building, we named our building after John Cummings. Our, our building is called the John Cummings Building. You know, it's going to have a big thing of him up there when it's finished, like the ground floor, and it's called the John Cummings Building. So, in everything that appears when we're having meetings, it, it, it's in, when you go to Google Maps, it is known as the John Cummings Building now, and it's sort of named in honour of him. And and, I'm, and and so, forever in a day, in a hundred years, when, when none of us are around it'll still be the John Cummings building. So that's how powerful he is. And it's not like a cult thing or a cult following. He was just a real genuine... You know, see some of the shitbags that lead to try, some of the trade union movement and all the rest of it and that. You know, someone like a John Cummings, he, he was just... He, he was my mentor, right, for me. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Back then, he was a cool dude. I mean, he used to drive an army green VK Commodore with the aerial on the roof. He used to look like a cop car. And when we were working on site, when you'd see that, he was the city organiser, when you'd see his car roll up, we knew something was going on and he'd, he had the double denim, used to wear the jeans. Like, he was almost like, whatever he wore, all the younger generation all wanted to wear what yeah, he wore. Yeah. He made flying jackets uh, cool. He made wearing double denim cool. You know what I mean? Whatever yeah. he did was sort yeah. of pretty cool. He was just a cool... Everyone modelled themselves around him, wanted to be like John Cummings. You know what I mean? He could hold a meeting, he could... Uh, you know, when you didn't have any answers and, and everyone was worried, what are we going to do now? He had the answers, you know what I mean? He, he'd get up there, he'd speak, and after he spoke, you felt like you could walk through a brick wall. And, you know, there's many a times where I've been in a pretty dark place where we're having a big blue and all that, and I sort of think, gee, if John Cummings was around and, and if he was retired or whatever, how good would it have been to be able to see him and sort of, um, you know, say, give us some advice, tell us what you reckon, you know? He was like, yeah. So he was just, yeah, just... So, so just be, before we go forward, I just want to go back 50 years this time to 1970. You're at primary school, at Kingsvale Primary yeah, School in yeah. Yarraville. Your dad, Bob's at work. Yeah. He walks out. He lights a cigarette. He's standing on top of the Westgate Bridge. And then it starts to collapse. Yeah. Well, well my dad is actually a rigger inside the bridge because the bridge span is actually very, very thick, right? And it's like big, massive manholes. You, you walk in there. So he was working in there, and you couldn't smoke in there because of all the oxy. So you had to walk out, and, and how the bridge is, if you see, before the bridge joins, there's all these manholes. It's like a big span. Uh, you'd walk out, there was a handrail, and you could walk, you could see the Yarra River. I remember my dad goes, he went outside to have a cigarette, and that's actually what saved his life, ironically. And he was looking at Port Melbourne, because my uncle was working on the Port Melbourne side, his brother. 
and he was looking at Port Melbourne, having a cigarette, and all of a sudden he just felt creaking and it just snapped. Next minute, one minute he was looking at Port Melbourne, next minute he goes, he's looking at the blue sky. Before he knew it, it's on the ground. He fell down with the bridge. He rode the bridge all the way down. So And 35 men died. 35 men died. If he'd been inside not having a cigarette, he would have been, uh, it would have been 36 men would have died. So, um, yeah, 18 survived. How, hence, my dad is one of the 18. That's my lucky number, 18. Even though Richmond didn't do too well in the finals for <laughs> 18. But, I mean, um, yeah, uh, so he's one of the 18. And, um, but and the I, impact of that, dis- that disaster, that tragedy on the building industry was huge. I mean, from yeah. what I was told, that the, the first stage sheds were actually back then underneath the bridge. Yes, Just yes. little well, things well, like that. Well, all the sheds. Well, the impact they, that yeah, it had yeah, on yeah, pushing yeah. safety as a big issue. So in the when, they, when they build bridges now, they never put the sheds under the bridge anymore because of the Westgate. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the people that were actually standing underneath the bridge actually all survived, believe it or not, because the air pressure of it coming down blew them out the way. The ones in the sheds obviously um, never made it. But, um, yeah, it, it, it changed the way... Amenities were set up on, on, on site. It changed the whole OHS thing back then, you know. Like to be honest, and it, and it galvanised. I think it galvanised the trade union movement in Victoria. We, you know, some people say we're we're probably the strongest, more unionised here because of the Eureka Stockade. And uh, people tell me that the Westgate Bridge was the thing that sort of galvanised everyone. I mean, one of the largest industrial tragedies in Australia's history, and. Um, you know, uh, you know, people going to work, 35 people dying in one hit, you know, it was a pretty sort of tough pill to swallow because of people make, making miscalculations. I mean, people never went home. And I went to school with kids who lost their dads, you know. We'd be at school making little things for Father's Day, and I'd say, how come they're not making something? You know, like when you're in primary school, you still don't understand fully. And so how come they're not making something? Oh, their dad died in the, you know, his dad died in the Westgate Bridge. That's why he's not making anything for Father's Day. He hasn't got a father, you know. And... It was pretty sad. You don't think much of it. Then you sort of just move on and you talk about something else. But as you get older, you, you, you then... You know, I went to Footscray High when it was still around um, before Jeff Kenner sold it through his mate Bailu. Um, you know, I went to school and there was kids there that had lost their fathers and they were growing up with their fathers. And, um, yeah, so that's Especially when it sort of really hit you. Especially yeah. yeah, Western suburbs. That's when it really sort of hit you. Um, yeah, I sort of never... Even my dad. My dad's got a big scar up his back where he had the operation. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of things come out later on as you get older, you don't understand. You know, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And uh, as I heard my dad get interviewed and my mum interviewed about what happened that day, a lot of things then, as you get older, you, you then put two and two together and you realise what had happened. But it was a pretty traumatic experience from the go-through. I mean, he knew every one of the people that died on that bridge, you know. And um, when you think of it, 35 people ain't that many people to, to know on a site. You work on a site with 300 people, you just about almost know everyone, right? Yeah. So you can imagine what it's like going to work and then 35 people that you know, that you work with every day, all of a sudden just dead in one hit, you know. It's, it's, you can't even imagine it, to be honest. You know, one where you, you lose a friend or a, someone you know, someone you don't even really know that worked on site passes away and you think how sad it is all day, you feel a bit eerie and that. You imagine 35, you know, shocking. Just, just looking at, like we were talking about before, about all the successes that the union has won and civilised the industry safety-wise, but also wages and conditions. I mean, back in the day, they didn't have that, but there'd yeah. be a lot of trade unionists who are maybe members of the Labour Party or the Communist Party or just good, strong trade unionists. Today, um, that's much less so. Yeah. But you've got, the, you've got the strong wages and you've got the great safety. So do you think today that our members are like middle class? Do you think that, that if there was a recession, because we've been really lucky without a recession yeah, yeah, since, yeah. since, apart from COVID, obviously, since the early, you know, well, since 20 years ago, whatever, that it could hit us a bit harder, that it would be harder for us to deal with? Do you think that we're, it's a, we're a victim of our own success, if you know what I mean? We are to a certain point. I mean, the more money you earn, the more money you spend. The more things you get, the newer toys. You, you just go try, drive past the building site. You see some of the cars, some of the construction workers own, you know. Um, and good luck to them. Why not? They've worked for it. They yeah. you know, didn't steal it. They, they've earned it. Um, but sometimes you fall into that trap where you almost become a slave to a system sometimes. You know, you big mortgage. I want the bigger house. I want the bigger car. Cause I'm an, and they are, at the moment, the money that they're in, they are middle class, right? And if it ever went back to... And some of these uh, uh, young kids, I don't know what it's like in 1990. I remember 1990 when that recession hit. Remember the old famous 30 years words? ago, actually. I said yeah, 2030, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the recession we had to have. I mean, interest rates went to 17.5%. People lost houses. I mean, you know, jobs. It was, it was trash. People forget about that, right? Yeah. That's how all the trash and treasure markets and all that all started up again because they, they wouldn't have survived before that. Everyone wanted everything brand new. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and you've got to, I think we've got a whole era of people where, um, you know, until I started working for the union, I never drove a new car my whole life, you know, whereas back then your, your first car was a, half these kids these days, they had the, my first car that I had, it was my dream. To them, they, they wouldn't even use it as a, you know, have their dog sleep in. Um, you know, everyone wants all the brand new cars and all that, and, and I think, I think if we do hit a recession like we did in 1990, I, I, I think a lot of our, our members or the construction industry people that have overcommitted themselves would be in big trouble. Yeah. You know? Because they have fallen in for that system. I get it, you're young, you don't care, I want this, I want that. And you get the older members on site who've been through this, they try and lecture them, ah, oh, don't buy the new one, should have bought a second hand one, should have done a bit of this, should have done a bit of that. And there's a little bit of that thing, ah, oh, well, I only live once, I want to enjoy it now. You know, it's, it, it, it has changed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But coming coming back to today, I mean, at the start of COVID, there was a lot of people outside of the industry saying we need to shut down construction, and uh, the CFMEU, the ETU, the plumbers union, and the bosses took a different approach. You sat yeah. down, you negotiated to keep the industry open with the yeah. necessary social, uh, you know, social distancing and so on. Talk us through that. Why did you make that decision, and do you think it was yeah. justified a year later? Yeah. Well, we went to uh, we went to a meeting with the government officials when it first started. And, uh, and the meeting was actually organised by the Master Builders Association, the, the, the new head of it, uh, Rebecca Casson. And we all went over there with all, along with all the other employer organisations and all the, all the construction unions. And we'd already put in, in place a, 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 a few safeguards. And, and we were talking to the Deputy uh, Health Officer then, who was uh, Van, Van Diemen, I forget what her name was. She, she was very receptive to us, she was pretty good. She answered all our questions and we sort of asked what we should do because we're not the experts on it. I mean, I'd like, I mean I'm mean, i not a virus expert. I mean, I know there was all of a sudden 10,000 experts in Victoria, namely Jeff Kenner was one of them, even though I didn't see a degree on his wall saying he was an expert in viruses. So we thought we'd listen to the experts that knew all about viruses. And what they said to us to keep doing what we were doing and, uh, and, and we were pretty safe. So we based all, the, everything that we did, we based it on what the professionals and the experts and the health professionals told us that we should do. We then went beyond that. We, uh, you know, we had, uh, in the end, we, we just made temperature testing mandatory on the site. You know, at first we sort of said, oh, it's up to people if they want it. But problem was, was we had a few cases where people had come on site, had COVID. If we'd had temperature testing, it would have stopped other people being infected. So we sort of made it mandatory. Uh, to protect, because we had an obligation to our members to, to protect them, and um, we put a lot of things in place which were well beyond uh, what even the health authorities had, had recommended to us. Um, we thought, you, can, you can't overdo this. Let's just put even more and more layers on it. Uh, all our delegates from the ETU, the Plumbers Union, metal workers, our delegates all had training uh, on, on contact tracing. On, on how to you know, you look for symptoms. So, so we're trained by the professionals. So that's why at one stage during the height of COVID, a construction site was actually the safest place to be on, believe it or not. So yeah, temperature testing on sites, uh, scanning machines. We've had everything. Uh, we had the Inkalink. Inkalink done a fantastic job in their bus going around and testing people. Um, and look, the first site where we had an outbreak, it was Melbourne Square, it was a multiplex site. I mean, I went there, I was there, I was on the job at about 5.30 in the morning, we're having a meeting. It, it, it was a bit hysterical, so we're having, we had to have meetings in four different blocks because of the amount of people on site. It was all marked out, the company had marked out the crosses on the floor where everyone had to stand to practice social distancing and there was a bit of hysteria, but I think where the members felt reassured is more there with them. I said to them, hey, I'm not in my office sitting there with a mask on and wrapped in cotton wool. I'm here out with you. So I can just get as well as you, you can. Do you think we'd be standing here if we thought there was a danger? So we're in it all together. And that's what we kept saying. We're in all this together. And, and so we just followed the experts' advice. We followed it all. We put extra layers on top of it. And, and that's how we got through it. Our, 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 some of the experts that where we had a few cases on site said that the expertise of the delegates on site in their contact tracing was just unbelievable. You know, they'd never seen anything like it. And, and for us, because we're already a dangerous industry, we have procedures put into place to protect us, you know, to protect people's lives and make sure they go home safe. So this was just another thing we had to add on. So we used to, you know, if you don't follow safety guidelines on a building site, you'll die or you'll kill someone else. So 
because it's a high-risk industry and we already follow pretty stringent sort of measures, it was just another measure we had to put into place. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's why we've done it better. And I remember there was one uh, building industry group meeting where I asked uh, Luke Hilakari, the secretary, Luke, is there anything that you can see? Trades Hall Secretary. Trades Hall Secretary, yeah. Victorian Trades Hall Secretary. Luke, we sort of said to Luke, Luke, is there anything you're dealing with all the other unions, is there anything in other industries that they've done that we could maybe uh, also add into our... And he just more or less said, look, you are just miles ahead of everyone. Everyone's trying to catch up to what we we're doing. So, uh, you know, we even had uh, the health department ask us to trial a, a rapid test on site. I was one of the guinea pigs that went and, uh, got tested, and, and that was a game changer. So instead of having to isolate, say, 800 construction workers, you know, two people have got symptoms, they've exposed to half the site, well, all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, we could have results on whether they were positive or not. So, um, yeah, we'll sort of trial... We'll, look, we're trailblazing in a lot of ways, but at some times, I'd be lying if I said I didn't... I, I had some sleepless nights. I, I'd get up in the morning and my wife would say to me, she'd sort of say, look, you're doing a good job, because she was working in the construction industry too, and I said, you know what? I sort of think to myself, you do sometimes, you, you doubt yourself, and I sort of thought, look, my son works in the industry, you know, I've got family members and friends that I grew up with that work in the industry, I would never jeopardise anyone's life, you know, theirs or, or any of our members' lives, and you carry this responsibility, you think, what if we have an out, what if we have a Ruby Princess, I think it was, in New South Wales on a building site, and it's, it's like massive, you know, and you always sort of sometimes... Uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best and and it didn't happen because even though we knew we had all the measures in place the countermeasures to not to, to make sure that didn't happen you still think you know this pandemic was pretty scary shit you know you're driving down geelong road to go to geelong to have a meeting and you know there's militaries there you know police there and it's almost surreal you know you think jesus what's going on here we're going to get through this is the world going to end you know you even i'm a pretty positive person even i start you know the I was too scared to even watch that series, The Walking Dead, because you see all the ex-military vehicles in. Is that going to happen to us now? Um, but look, we sort of work together. And I'll tell you one, one positive thing that came out of it. There was a lot of employer organisations that we'd never really had much time for, never had really... So when you're in a situation like that, there actually is no sides anymore, you know, at that time. You, you're sort of all in a fight for survival. And one of the things that we sort of noticed also, and... Uh, there was a lot of companies that had been around for, for a long, long time. You know, some companies employed 800 people, 900 people. If we had to listen to uh, uh, the people that close it all down, there was companies there. Like, I had one company come up to me, and they were pretty positive. They're, they're, they're not an anti-union company. They said, we've been around for X amount of years. If we're closed down for any prolonged period, we, f we will not exist as a company anymore. It's finished, right? And... I sort of thought about that, and I thought, that's them who are financially viable. They're, they're gone. They're finished. So you imagine how many other companies would collapse, developers would collapse, developers wouldn't pay the builders, so the builders then collapse. What would we come back to? You know, mm. what sort of landscape would we get back to? But putting all that aside, if at any stage we thought we were endangering our members' lives, we would have not hesitated in closing down. I look mm. at it this way. Better everyone's gone broken and we're still alive than mm. dead. Um, but it was still a hard decision to make, but we, we, we sort of ticked all the boxes. We made sure. We, we, we formed some alliances with some of the employer organisations who were working together. And when they had to pull up some of their members that weren't adhering to COVID policies, let me tell you, they, they were pretty ruthless in how they did it, which impressed me. So, so we built a few good alliances. And obviously, look, when it's all over and we do get through all this, it'll be just back to normal. We'll be throwing shit on them. They'll throw shit on us. Um, that's all part, part of the course. But I think some things will change forever. I, I don't think, like, there was a side, for example, to the CFME order to the construction industry that people seen that they never thought existed. You know, we are responsible. I mean, we're stakeholders. We, we earn a living out of this industry. Uh, you know, just like a project manager or a developer, I mean, they're in it to earn money for whatever, for provide for their families, whatever. Well, sometimes they forget we're stakeholders too. And we carried a lot of weight and a lot of responsibility during COVID. Uh, and we, we helped the industry get through it. A lot of companies say they probably wouldn't be around if it hadn't been for the uh, how strong the union did what they did. Um, and I think that's a compliment to, to, to the industry. It shows that we're all stakeholders in it. It was our industry, it was our livelihoods, and we all banded together and we sort of and we and we got through it. You know. So yeah. No, that's good. I, I want to talk to you about 
the number of women coming into the building, building yeah. industry, it has been a massive increase in women, including my daughter and yeah. many, many women, yeah. not just in traffic, but in, in other uh, trades. And I think to a lot of people outside the building industry, they would find that really surprising because you ask yeah. your average yeah. man and woman on the street, oh, do you know John Setgate? They'll be thinking, yeah, yeah. oh, 2019, he got charged yeah, yeah. with this, he, he got charged yeah, with yeah. the... Uh, for or, sending, you know, for the, sending text messages. <laughs> harassing you with a carriage service yeah. and 12-month bond and all that. And then you had McManus trying to get you to resign. You had Albo trying to get you to resign now. Obviously, the members came in behind you solidly. Yeah, yeah. But... And, and, and I want you to two years on to tell me how, you know, if you could just look back and tell me what you think about all of that. But just the other side of it, which is less known amongst outsiders, is that under your leadership, there's been a, quite a conscious policy by the CFMEU to get more women into the industry. How, have you, how, you, how are you doing that and how is that, how's that yeah. panning out? Well, for me, I mean... Number one, I open up, look, when we done our mass meeting, when we could have a mass meeting, the last EBA, not this one, the, the last one, and it was my first one as the secretary, and it was one of the biggest we've ever had. I mean, I opened up the meeting by saying, your brothers and sisters, and there were some women in there that later on were actually got a very emotional and were a bit teary and all that, and I go, what's wrong? Did I say something wrong? They go, no, we never thought in our life we'd ever hear the leaders of the union saying that at a mass meeting, so why not? You know, I was shocked at that, and I thought, why is that? Is that, was that the perception amongst some of the women? Uh, so it was a big thing for them uh, by me just saying that. Recognition. I, I open up every meeting. I go to a site, do a lot of toolbox meetings on sites, and I open up every one of them by saying brothers and sisters. Whether there's a woman there or not, and I've said to the organisers, that's how we open up all our meetings, right? Uh, we've openly pushed for, for, for more women to come in. We want to break this, that stereotype. And, and one of the things I do when I have a meeting on site is I say to people... Remember, we've got a lot of women on site, and nearly every site you do go to, there is a number of women there, which is very refreshing. Um, and I sort of say to them, remember, if you're working on a site, when you're working with uh, one of our female members, and, and I say to them, remember, there's more females than males in Australia, so you be careful, they want to revolt against you, we're in trouble, right? Um, they, they are equals, you've got to treat them as equals, because they are our equals, they're human beings, they are members. I mean, just because they're females doesn't mean they're inferior or anything, doesn't mean because it's a, been a male-dominated industry for so long that they can't do the job. In a lot of cases, they do the job better than men do, right? Um, so I sort of say to them, when you're working with a woman, just be conscious of that, and you might drop a smart-ass, like a little bit, a bit of a joke, and some of the old-school boys, they drop an old... I said, just remember this, if that was your daughter, your niece, your mother, your sister, or your wife working, how would you like him to be treated? And that makes people think, you know, like I had one bloke come up to me and, you know, I remember once there was a bloke, he said something to a girl, he didn't mean it, but anyway, and I, and, and I, and I said to him, Mate, what if that was your daughter? And someone said that, oh, I'd kill him. Oh, really? But it's all right for someone to do it on someone else's daughter. And he said, yeah, very point taken. So I, I, I try and, that's how we're trying to educate a lot of that, school like just think about that put yourself in that situation if that was your daughter wouldn't wouldn't you like her to be treated with respect and dignity in the workplace you know so that really resonates with people because they think when they put it in that perspective and then then i've been told by other people oh, i shouldn't use that because that's degrading women by using that analogy I, I don't know where they get that but anyway it works for us because i've had a lot of members come up to me i've had a lot of women that have been on site come up and say that was fantastic thank you very much for all the support and all the rest of it and i, 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 and I said look Thank you. You know, you're the members. I mean, we're here working for you. You pay. See, I always say to the members at their meetings, you pay our wages. And I say to the women, you pay our wages. You tell us what you want. So we've got an open door policy when it comes to women. We want more women. We want more women as delegates. And, and that is happening now. We've got a whole new younger generation of women coming on site. That is, it's so refreshing. It's fantastic. We have had hardly any cases of any discrimination against the women. I think the worst is the employers. The employers getting their head around. Some of them say, oh, if we have a girl here, then everyone's going to try and date her. But, mate, like somebody said, it's a, it, it's a work site, not a dating site. You know, I mean, don't throw obstacles in the way. I, I think part of the problem is some of the older construction workers didn't want their kids, you know, daughters working on a construction site. Where that, that's changed now because they see it's all... Be more civilised. They make a better. lot more money in a building yeah, site than yes, in hospitality. And, they, and they've seen the other women work there, how they're respected and how they... So I, I, I think, look, even in our clause, we've realised that we've got a big problem with women with young kids, whether she's a single single mother with two young kids, for example, or, or a married mother with two young kids. I'll, I'll paint a scenario. 
You've got a married uh, uh, mother or an unmarried mother with two kids. Even her partner goes to work early in the morning. Well, she can't afford to have a nanny, so she's got to get the kids ready, take them to school. And, and a lot of schools haven't got before care. They've got after care, but there's no before care. So how could she work in a building site when you're supposed to start work at 6.30 or 7 o'clock? So that's why in our latest EBA, we've got a clause in there for part-timers, which we're trialling. And what the part-timers is... It's, it's in regards to women and our elderly members. So what happens to a woman, it's called job sharing. So what can happen is you might have an uh, uh, older woman whose kids are already grown up, you know, they, they take themselves to school. She can start work at 6.30, work till, say, 10.30, 11. And the woman whose kids, she has got no choice but to take them to school herself, well, she's got a segue. After that, she comes to work and she can work. And so she's got a career in the construction industry and they're sharing a job. Um, and I think it's fantastic. So as her kids get older and they take themselves to school, she's already in the construction industry. She's going to earn good money even being job sharing. Um, and, and it's a segue for a lot of women who could only dream of... You know, some of them sort of say, oh, when my kids get older, maybe then I'll look at getting in the construction industry. We don't have to wait anymore. They can get in there earlier. And that's why we're trialling it. We've got a couple of pilot programs to see how it works, tweaking it to see where, all the, where some of the rorty is probably going to go on. Uh, and the same applies to our elderly members, you know, like, like two older members, like they say to me, we can't work the long hours anymore, we don't need to, we haven't got mortgages, kids are left home, we've got less bills to pay, but we still need to work, but not six or seven days a week. So they job share. So there's also a clause in there in regards to respecting women in our EBA. So for all the people out there that want to all talk about it and, and, and get on their big soapboxes and talk about it, I don't see too much action happening. We actually do it. So there's a clause in every induction in Victoria when you get inducted on the site, there is a clause in there in relation to how to treat women in the workplace and respect women in the workplace. So that's our clause that we have in our EBA. Mm. So, so moving on, I mean like the union wages on a, if you're working in a construction industry on a, on, a, on a union site, the different, the gap between that and non-union site is absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean do you think that there's a potential that we're like an island surrounded by shit in terms of working class people in, 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 in the building industry, but also generally in society, and that we're like being set up for a deregistration, like the BLF oh, was in the 80s? Yeah, look, they, they could try that, but I mean, I, my, my personal thing is I think we're going through a phase where people want to live in apartments at the moment. That's not going to last forever, right? Mm. Yeah, people go through trends. I mean, we're following the European trend, let's all live in apartments. Now, there was one stage where people wanted to shift out of Melbourne and live, you know, if you didn't live two hours away, there was something wrong with you and you had a, an acre. Now everyone wants to live in closer. Eventually there's going to be another trend that's going to, you know, follow. So I, I think a lot of the infrastructure stuff... See, see, what we notice with a lot of the non-union builders, they come in there and a lot of them go broke at the end. They, they never complete the job because they they get a lot of housing contractors who might be very good at building a house, but when it comes to a multi-storey with programs and, 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 and all these safety measures on it that come off a high-rise... They, they don't make it. A lot of them that have gone in there have done one job and then got out of there because they, they, they lost a lot of money there because they just weren't used to it. I said, oh, we'll leave it to, to, the, to the people that are experts at it. But look, there's always going to be... Uh, there's always, look, we, we are going after that non-union sector. Um, and, and you'd be surprised to see how many people that are in the union actually work in that non-union sector. They're actually in the union. And a lot of them are actually on the higher rates because there's certain trades and certain things that get done that can't be done by these, uh, you know, they've got to be done by the professionals. I, I think it's just one of them things. We're going through a phase at the moment. There's a bit of a boom. Uh, there's a market for it. Um, it'll slowly, as quick as it's come, it'll slowly sort of go. But it's our job to go and organise some of them. You know, we, we've got a clause in our EBA for some of that lower tiered stuff where it sort of reverts back to some things in the award, like their overtime rate might be uh, time and a half instead of the double time. So they're still much better off than what they are under the... See, because from what we've been told at the EBA negotiations, our mainstream builders and some of these non-union builders, the, uh, it's getting very close. It's like you're talking about sometimes there's only a 3% difference, you know, a 5% difference, because some of these non-union people have realised they're losing money hand over fist, so their price is going up. Mm. So they're getting closer to what the... So, so a lot of the uh, EBA and unionised companies are now sort of saying with this clause in the EBA that gives them the capacity to actually win this work. They can go after this work more aggressively and win it. 
uh, at least then it's all unionised and people are getting proper wage conditions, they're getting superannuation, they're getting all sorts of sort of things. So in the end, look, we will get there. It'll never be 100%. Nothing's ever 100%. Never has been, never will be. Uh, but we will eventually get there. When I first joined the industry, the union was run by Irish and Scotch and Celts and the, the media used to always talk about pommy shop stewards and yeah, have a crack. Yeah, and yeah, I remember yeah. the members used to say, listen, you buy a cat, if it kills the mouse, it's doing it the job. <laughs> we don't care if the cat's black or white. Yeah. And now today, you know, you, you get the cracks out oh, the unions or Croatians, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how do you respond to those criticisms? Well, it's not. I mean, they're a very small part of the, the whole structure. I mean, we've got 400 and something shop stewards in Victoria, you know. Um, we are a pretty diverse sort of, you know, um, when it comes to, you know, we, we've got shop stewards and representatives and members of all walks of life, you know. We've got Muslims, uh, we've got, uh, you know, we even put a, a Facebook thing on, um, uh, it was a Muslim, uh, it was a special holy day, we, we whacked that on our Facebook and that, and a lot of them were surprised and we say, well, we're, we're pretty diverse, we're a pretty diverse group, we would have to be the most... You know, you've got certain industries where, and this industry what used to be dominated by a lot of the Irish, uh, a lot of the English, you know, people from Welsh, Scottish, and all that, that used to be dominated. That's all changed. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of Portuguese in there now. Uh, you've got Croatians, you've got the Portuguese, you've got Greeks, you've got Italians. Uh, Chinese. You've got Chinese yeah. in there. So you've got a lot of Cambodians in there. So it's a, we're a pretty diverse group. That's why we've got a lot of officials that actually speak a lot of them languages now, where you wouldn't have seen that before. You know, nearly every organiser before wouldn't have known how to talk Italian, wouldn't know how to talk. So we've got a whole mixture of different, you know, we embrace all different cultures. And for us, we, we look at it this way. If you're, if you're a member of the union, we don't care where you came from, where your father came from, what colour you are, what creed you are. You know, we're all equals, you know. And, and that's what I like about the union movement. We do create that equal, we are all equal. No one's better than one another. Um, and if you don't know the language, like my dad, when he came to Australia, my dad didn't know how to speak English, you know what I mean? So um, you've got to have a bit of empathy for people, you know, they, they come on the site and you'll get some people, there's still a little bit of that, ah, you shouldn't even be here, there's no to talk English. So, well, you know what, that's how it is, it's our job. He's a member of the union and we're going to protect him, he gets the same rights as everyone else and we're going to help him along. And uh, and, and I think, uh, even coming to our office, seeing leaflets in all different languages, it, it's just, it's they feel like it's their union, like to see... A lot of Chinese plasterers and all that come into the office and buy union tops. I'm proud when I see that. I go, you know, we are doing something right. You know, I go out on the weekends and that. You see a lot of people of different nationalities and different colours and races and that wearing CFU tops. I go, we are all in it together. You know, we don't care about your colour, your creed, where you come from, who your father was or what. We don't care. You're a union member. You, you, you're part of the union and that's how it should be. And, and Australia was built on multi, multiculturalism, you know. You hear people say, you know, wogs, and there's a little bit of that still goes around. And I just say to people at meetings, you know what, hey, unless you're an Indigenous Australian, we're all wogs, because we all came from somewhere, or our parents came from somewhere. So the only true Australian is really is, is the Indigenous Australian. And, and look at the way they got treated. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think one of the problems in the industry at the moment is, is the finishing traits. So pretty much you walk in any union job, 100% unionisation. Everyone's yeah, got yeah. the union stickers. All the companies have signed the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement with the CFMEU. Um, but often at the end of the job, your plasters, your Chinese plasters, your Afghani tilers, yeah. your South American cleaners, often um, they're not getting the full rate. Behind the scenes, yeah. they're actually yeah. getting a yeah. lower rate. Yeah. Um, how do you, what's the strategy of the union to deal with that? Because that can be quite yeah. demoralising yeah. to, oh. you know, especially oh. when the, the, the finishing trades are usually non-white, you know, yeah. and the beginning yeah. of the job, they usually are white, you know? Well, a lot, a lot of them got imported as cheap labour and they come in on a one-week one working visa. And, and, was, and, and the first thing was to break through this, you know, people say, oh, fuck them, who gives a shit about them? And I said, hang on a sec, they're union members. They've come here for a better life, just like everyone else's parents did, you know? So we've got an obligation to look after them. And once you get through the... See, because they get told by their employers, don't go to the union because they hate you, they're all racist and they want to deport you all, you know? <laughs> once we've got through that language barrier, we've got Chinese interpreters for them and all that, and we tell them what's going on, then it's 100%. They're, they're as dedicated as the ha most hardcore union person. I mean, they want what they're entitled to. So uh, one of the things that we, we, we've done is we've noticed we're desecrating the trades. So... You know, like, for example, let's look at this. Uh, an electrician or a plumber, it's a licensed trade. So if you do an apprenticeship, at the end of that apprenticeship, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You've actually got a career path. 
What we noticed with carpentry, uh, plastering, bricklaying, you didn't have to do an apprenticeship to, to lay bricks or to... So we've now changed that. We lobbied the government and we finally, it took us years and years to do, we finally got it in. It's going to take a couple of years to sort of bring it in because you've got someone, for example, you might have a Chinese plasterer that's been doing plastering for 20 years. He's probably as good as a tradesperson. So what will happen is they'll do a competency uh, test and they'll be given an accreditation for their skills and, and, and their knowledge and their years of service in the industry. But after that, you want to be a plasterer, you're going to have to do a trade. You're going to have to finish an apprenticeship and show indenture papers before you're able to hang a sheet of plaster. So what's going to happen is a lot of kids are going to take up them apprenticeships because it was almost like a dying trade. Mm. Uh, carpentry. Um, you know, the, the argument we use to the government is, no offence to the plumber, but you put that black poly pipe on the wall there and connect the tap to it, you're going to be licensed. Yet, you know, 40 floors up, you're putting the balcony where 10 people are going to be standing on. It's done by a carpenter, but you're not even licensed. You're not, not even a you're not even a tradesperson. Mm. Yet, how does that? You know what I mean? And that would weed out the the underpayment yes, of finishing yes, trades. Yes, that'll start weeding out the underpayment. Um, so, so that's the. It'll take we, a while, though, won't it? Too. Oh, it's going to take a. It's going to take the next four to five years for it to sort of come in because you can't throw all these people out of the industry that have been earned a living out of it, are pretty competent. But you're going to stop the rorting of it. You know, we've got uh, Afghani tile layers that have been, you know, w once we can get that licensed, you know, we have a situation, and it's hard for people to believe, you could write a book on it, you know, where, where, where the delegate on sites make sure they get their money, they've got all their back pay, they get their proper money, when they get their pay, he checks it, make sure they've got it all, and then you find out two weeks later that they had to meet the boss at the end of the day and pull money out of an ATM machine and give them back the money. I mean, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. No, literally, it's yeah. just so sad. It's just yeah. an absolute, if we were doing it, we'd be in jail, but these, some of these ruthless employers can do it and, and it's just with total immunity. So I just want to talk to you about some of the tensions inside the CFM with the yeah. other divisions. Uh, obviously, you're the boss of the C bit of the CFMU, yeah, yeah, yeah. construction, but you've got a situation now where Michael O'Connor, the boss of the manufacturing industry, uh, the manufacturing division, Tony Marr, head of the mining division, are working... Yeah. It seems secretly, at least, with the Federal um, Industrial Relations Minister, Christian yeah. Porter, to, to, to break up and deregister, or, or yeah. sorry, to, uh, to de-amalgamate yeah, yeah. the CFM. I mean, what's that all about? Well, part of it is a bit, bit of sour grapes. I mean, Michael O'Connor, I mean, he was the National Secretary of the Union until there was a vote of no confidence taken in him. Um, he, look, there's a lot of union leaders that are more interested in the ALP than they are in their, in their members. And, and I hate that. I've always despised that. I think, I think the people that pay your wages, that we're, we're holding to them. They pay our wages. Uh, the ALP don't pay my wages, so that's why I'm not beholden to them. I'm not even a member of them anymore. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, the tensions were created when there was a vote of no confidence in Michael O'Connor, the way he was running the union. Um, there was a... To, to, to cut a long story short, straight after the federal election, people were just, uh, they were gutted. Um, and, and look, I were a bit upset about it, but life goes on. You know, the sun's still going to rise. You know, the sun's still going to set. We've got a job to do. We've got members to represent. Some of them, their, their, their attitude was almost, oh, well, let's just ring up Port and hand over the keys and let's just give up. It's all over. We've lost, you know. And I, I just thought it was a pretty piss-poor attitude. And, but that's what you get from ALP hacks. And... Um, so uh, there was a vote of no confidence in Michael O'Connor um, and uh, a new person that's, that, that we're, we're, we're hoping uh, well, he will be, the next National Secretary is Christy Kane. Um, and, and that'll revitalise the union because Christy Kane will go out and, and, and talk to members. I mean, Tony Marr having secret meetings of Christian Porter on getting demerger things passed, I mean... Christian Porter would have been rubbing his hands together. Can you imagine? I yeah. mean, all these secret meetings. Apparently, not even the ACTU knew about it. And then someone like Elbo, who's a mate of uh, uh, Mars, just runs, rush, rushes it through caucus and they put it in through. Now, whilst it might not affect us, there's a lot of other unions out there that are made up of a whole heap of amalgamations. Can you imagine if they get in one disgruntled group and, oh, we want to de-amalgamate now? Can you imagine what that's going to start? So why they did that, I mean... You know, unions are democracy. If you lose a vote in the union, it uh, doesn't mean you just pack up your board and I'm, I'm leaving now, you know. So, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a low blow. I think it's disgraceful. Um, look, if he was meeting with Christian Porter over doing something for their members or doing something like that, hey, you meet with whoever you've got to meet with to, to, to get the outcome for your, for your union. But 
to put the whole rest of the trade union movement in jeopardy and yet n not one bit of criticism from the ACTU. Can you imagine if I'd done that? If I'd had a secret meeting reporter and got some legislation put through that, that was going to, you know, damage the trade union movement, I mean, that'd be... But they'd be burning effigies of me down on Swanson Street, you know. But Tony Ma does it. Total silence uh, from the ACTU. Why? I mean, that's what I don't get. How, how was not the rest of the trade union movement consulted on this? You know, it's a pretty bad bit of legislation. So it sort of makes you wonder sometimes. I, I, I sort of think the Libs must laugh at us sometimes. But I mean, um, and Albo just rushing it through. I mean, who did he talk to? My understanding is he's a mate of Tony Ma's. This is what Tony Ma wanted, so I'm doing it. Well, they're a very small part of the whole trade union movement, really. So, makes you wonder. I mean, what, what, what's your relationship now with the ACTU and, and, and the ALP? Because both McManus and Arbo calling in to resign two years ago, and all the rest of it. Now, two years is a long time in politics. I mean, do you have a better relationship with them now, or no, not really? Look, look, we, we deal with the state Labor Party here. Federally, uh, we don't really sort of deal with them. I, I don't really want to. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there are some good politicians, and I dealt with a lot of good state politicians that helped us get through COVID, which are fantastic. Some of the ministers' departments we dealt with... Let me at tell a state you, level. Yeah, at a state yeah, level, yeah. were absolutely awesome, really, really refreshing. I think there's some good federal people out there too that, that really actually do care about workers. Um, but overall, I've never really liked... I've always kept politicians at, at arm's length, to be quite honest. You've got to play in that sphere for the benefit of our members. Uh, I mean, I'm ne never going to be an MP. None of our officials are ever going to be MPs, uh, we're, nor have we any desire to be. Our first aim is our members. And um, the relationships with the ACTU, I mean, I haven't spoke to Sally since she asked me to resign over, over stuff that was untrue. Um, so I, 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 in the end, in my court case, I mean, uh, it was found that, you know, we and my wife had a little bit of a relationship breakdown. It was a bit of an argument. And it was text messages sent, not of a threatening nature or anything like that. Even the magistrate conceded there was no threats or violence or, 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 or anything of that nature. But, gee, some of the language was pretty bad. Well, generally, I don't know, for people out there, that's what generally happens when you have a bit of an argument. You Sometimes you use some colourful language, right? Um, so uh, am I proud of it? Of course I'm not. But you know what? Uh, what was it, any of their business? Uh, manufacturing stories about Rose Batty and all that sort of stuff, which is an absolute... That was just manufacturing a story. I've nothing but the utmost respect for, for Rosebud. It'd be like now someone saying I was at a meeting and I was hanging shit on John Cummings. That's what it'd be like. So I didn't take the thing seriously when they first started. I thought, oh, this is bullshit. I've never said that. And it, just, it was just amazing how something just out of nothing just grows all these legs. So they all got sort of sucked into that. I think it was a bit of a conspiracy that as soon as we said we weren't going to give the ALP any more money and they could go jam it, that was my apparently my suicide note that they talk about at the meeting, where I said they can jam it up their ass, not giving them any more money. That would have got um, to them, yeah. Well, that's what got to a lot of people. So it was almost like let's get get John Setke campaign, which was pretty low. I mean, me and my wife and family were mending our relationship. We we're in a very good place, and to sort of come home and see Elbow shooting his mouth off over something that was just untruthful and didn't even know what he was talking about, and then having Sally McManus, you know, I mean, last time I looked, we pay Sally McManus doesn't pay us, so. Um, yeah, to sort of see me, and I had a witness there with me, Troy Gray from the ETU, good friend of mine, uh, very loyal, who, who, who I brought along. Uh, he was there as, as a witness. Uh, it was just bullshit. The, the things that she threw at me, so who told you that? But why are you believing all that bullshit? And when I went to court, it was all proved to be, all this other stuff was just proved to be all bullshit. And I never heard from any of them. And you know what? I could live another 100 years, and if I never spoke to Sally McManus anymore or, or Elbow, I've never, I've never liked Albo, never spoken to him anyway. Um, yeah, no skin off my nose, really. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got to understand the trade union movement pay the ACTU. The ACTU doesn't pay the trade union movement. And uh, I don't know. Um, I'm a bit disappointed in the ACTU. I think they've lost their way since the election loss, um, which I think is sad. I, I think the, the ACTU should be always at arm's length and to be seen as being independent. And they're not. And, um, you know, we have this Fair Work Act that we have now. And like, 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 a, like a, a fellow brother at the MUA once said to me, we had a Gillard Rudd government, you know, LP, where they had control of everything. The Senate, the whole lot. They, they rode in on the, on the wave of uh, workers, you know, the Your Rights at Work campaign. That's what got them elected. The Prime Minister Howard lost his own seat. 
And what was the legacy of all that? The Fair Work Commission. What a wonderful legacy, you know? And people sort of don't want to... I say that and Admit people, oh, that. you shouldn't yeah. say that. But it's true. I mean, call it as it is. You know, that, that's our legacy. So, yeah, I haven't got too much time for these people. I mean, um, yeah, it is what it is. There is not much of a relationship. We're still affiliated to the, to the ALP. We're still affiliated to the ACTU. Um, sometimes you wonder why. Uh, maybe it's because they'd rather we weren't. <laughs> That's why we're still affiliated. Just to piss I, I them off. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it's a bit disappointing. I mean, uh, peak union body just becomes bureaucratic. And, and in my view, like somebody, some other senior union person said to me, it is like a club. And, you know, you have union elections every now and again. And a senior union ALP person said to me, John, you've got to remember one thing. Whenever someone's having a union election, what do they do? How do they get elected? They hang shit in the ACTU and they hang shit in the ALP, and that's how they get elected. And I thought, as sad as it is, how true is that? Uh, yeah. Just one last question, John. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like your family, you, your wife, your dad, blessed, cursed, but they've been part of the building industry for a long time. Yeah. But it seems, for me at least, the most amazing story, you wouldn't believe it if you pitched it to Hollywood. You're in 2013, you're in this death roll with Grocon, you and yeah. Daniel Grollo. It gets quite, at least in the media, it gets quite personalised. Yeah, yeah. You're at the, off, the union office at the time is on Swanson Street. You're at your union office doing your business. Across the road, there's a Grocon uh, job. Yep. And you hear a noise and a wall falls on three poor people yeah, just yeah. walking past. You yeah. run across the road and you're part of a crew that's just trying to save those Same, people. Yeah, yeah. T t how did that make you feel? Tell us, tell us about that. Well, it's something that, you know, uh, I was told I should have had counselling over that. It's a pretty traumatic uh, thing when you're there trying to help some poor kids and, and uh, you know, you've got your staff there kneeling in blood, giving first aid. Because um, one of them was, was kept alive by our staff. Um, you know, you're lifting bricks and you're sort of thinking, gee, what else are we going to find under there? Is there any other bodies, any other kids under there? You, you don't know. Um, you know, being a father myself of three kids, it's something I'll never forget. You know, you take stuff like that to the grave. And then the worst part about it is actually meeting the parents. Like, um, two, two of the people killed were a brother and sister. And, um, you know, I, I thought my third kid was going to be a daughter. And one of the names I wanted to, I liked was Bridget. And because the girl that had passed away, who, who her, our staff saved, but then she passed away, I think, on Easter Sunday in hospital. I just sort of thought I, I ended up having a boy, and it was a boy anyway, but I mean, I wouldn't have picked the name Bridget, which I wanted because of that, you know, it just would have brought back too many memories. And, 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 and for uh, the only two kids of parents to have been killed in that way, walking down the main street in, in Melbourne, when then parents come to the office to thank us, that was probably one of the hardest things in my life. I mean, what do you say to two parents who are in their 60s the only two kids they've got who have just been tragically killed, what do you say to people like that? You know, and um, which all could have been avoided. So, and then, you know, you're going through, you've got all these demons going through, you can't believe it. Our staff were traumatised. We were th sort of right there. And, and uh, I'll never forget walking out, you know, when someone said a wall had come down. I thought it was a wall in the office, you know, a plaster wall had come down. And everyone's all hysterical. And I thought, gee, gee, it's a plaster wall, big deal. As long as no one's hurt, we'll fix it. To walk outside, to look over at the tram stop and see what I seen, it was like surreal. It was like an explosion had just happened. You could, it, it all looked different, you know. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. I, I try and not think about it sometimes, but um, you can't every time. I, I actually try and avoid that part of Swanson Street, to be quite honest. I can imagine. Uh, I, yeah. I'm glad we've shifted from there to, to where we are now. Um, it just shows, you know, you all got kids, and you think, you know, you're walking down the most prominent street in Melbourne. You think you'd be safe, you know, and. Um, just sort of goes to show so and and then, and then to be called by the premier then nap thing beneath contempt i mean what was i beneath contempt because we were calling people out for what had happened and war there i mean we were at the tragedy we had to uh console people our staff and, and ourselves and you know uh and then to be called beneath contempt i'll never forget that i couldn't i, I couldn't I thought he wasn't there, and that thing wasn't there. What, what, you know, so he was the Premier of Victoria at the time. Premier the Liberal, Liberal Premier, time, Premier. Yeah. Yeah. So, and calling me beneath contempt. I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, rather than say I was terrible for all the people that were there, and I, you know, we had the fireys, all the rescue people, sending us letters of saying how commended our staff and what we did there, and keeping the people alive, and it was commendable for what we'd done. Then we got the Premier hanging shit on us, you know. So yeah. forget about Liberal and Labor. It was just a tragic 
thing that had happened in Melbourne. We were there, it happened right across from our office. We were intimately involved in it. And then to be called beneath contempt, I, 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 to me, I'll, I'll never forget that. You know? So, uh, you know, people say, oh, the Libs and Labor, and there's not much difference between some of them and all that. And, and there isn't sometimes. It's fucking hard to tell. If it wasn't for their logo, you wouldn't fucking tell. But uh, let me tell you. Um, that was a low blow, yeah. That was a pretty low blow. Yeah. You know? It was just, yeah, I, I was still... You know, people come to me and said you should you should have uh, uh, you should have some counselling over that. And I, you know what? This is probably the first time I've talked about it for ages. I try not to talk about it. I just that that's my way of sort of coping with it. But it's uh, yeah, I just feel sorry for the families. And you know, the, he's three students walking down the street, minding their own business, and um, next minute, you know, they're dead. You know what a waste of a life it, but it, you know it was just it just it was just so unavoidable that that's the worst part about it it should never have happened just on, just to finish up on a positive note then i saw tyson mike tyson on the telly the other day and somebody said to him how would you like to be remembered and he said i just want to be remembered <laughs> how, how would you like to be remembered oh look you know hopefully some of the things we we have done in the building industry in regards to bringing in women safety um you know, for me, a big passion for me is I don't think anyone should ever go to work and never come home again. You know, we, we, we've, got a high, we, we've got one of the highest suicide rates of any industry, and I think part of that is driven by, you know, it's a very risky job. It's high risk. You're always on edge because it is a risky job. Um, and, and I think that leads to your, you know... Your, ner yeah, your nerves. Your nerves yeah. Everything, everything, and the long know, hours. And, 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 yeah, and the long hours and all that, and the fatigue and all that, and... Um, you know, if, to know that because nearly every office worker, no offence to them, but you know they're going to come home alive. You know, um, I, I would like if there was, like, if you could somehow prevent, uh, you know, after the Westgate and everything, and seen. And I've been on sites when someone's died, and there's no feeling like being there. And you sort of sit there and you think, gee, this person, they had, what were they going to do this weekend? What were they going to do tonight? Were they going to go to dinner? Were they going to watch a movie? Were they, they had all these fucking plans, and it's all come to an end. You know, and and, and the worst part about it is, is the families that are sort of then forgotten. You know, I mean, they're victims too. I mean, their lives are never, ever the same ever again, you know. Um, I just, if we could stop, I'd love to say, we've made it safer and we've saved all these lives and people aren't taking their own lives or aren't being killed at work. Um, making the industry safer, making more, like my daughter's, uh, she's going to be nine years old, you know, soon. And, and, and I'd like to think that, if she wants her at 18, she can go into construction site quite comfortably. All the obstacles have been removed to stop her from going there. Uh, she can be a doggy on a crane and that. Or she can choose to be a lawyer or she can choose to be whatever she wants. I, I just think where we've opened the doors to our industry to, 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 to women is important. I think our industry leading the charge in uh, uh, Indigenous Australians, I mean First Nations people, you know, being recognised and acknowledged. So we have a smoking ceremony as part of our EBA on every site when it started, uh, the traditional owners of the land are acknowledged. It's in part of the induction. There is a, a plaque put up of, of whoever, the Wurundjeri people, whoever it is in that area, is put up there. So it's a bit of an educational program. You know, I say to people at meetings, you know, a lot of you come from countries where, where your countries were taken away from you or your fathers and that. These people had their country taken away from them. It is their country. We're here earning a living on their country uh, and we've got to acknowledge them and, and, and show them respect. And, and, and all them things that we're doing, as that comes to fruition and, and the changes, the whole thing, I mean, I'd like to be remembered for that, you know, that um, we have sort of changed the industry. We've made it safer. That's my number one point. We've made it a safer industry. Uh, but at the same time, we've educated our members. So our members aren't seen as the Neanderthals. We're the progressive ones. We're the ones leading the charge. Uh, we're not the happy clappers that all want to go around and just talk all this shit and read about it and write about it, be the armchair revolutionaries, but actually do nothing about it at all. We're the can-do people. We will do there. We will drive it. And if it's not popular, we don't care. We will... Uh, you know, you go to our office now, when you're leaving, we've got a sign-up at every entrance where it acknowledges the traditional owners of the land. Um, there's not many places you go to where, where that's there, which is a shame. A lot of people want to talk about it. So... They're the sort of things I'd like to be remembered for. And as long as people don't sort of... You know, it's like as soon as you leave, you're the biggest arsehole of all time. <laughs> That's just what happens. It's like, a, it's like the Australian sport. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd like to be remembered for the, for the person that, that, that's actually... You know, 
This union is the members' union. It's not our union. It's not my union. Uh, I'm just part of it. I just happen to be the person that's the secretary and they forgot to give me the T-shirt of the target on my back. Um, I never aspired to be the secretary of this union. And if someone had told me you're going to be the secretary of the union, I, was, I never, you know. It was one of the things I didn't set out in the course to one day be the boss of the union. It just sort of happened. Um, I just want you know, the members to know. And, and, and like when you walk into our office in the new Renault when it's all fully finished, it's their union, you know. We, you know, the, the counters and all that look like a building site. It's like that form ply, the floors, everything. It doesn't look like the stock exchange. It's their, this is their building. This is your union, your money paid for this. This is your building, be proud of it. And uh, that's what we want to leave. So the members have that ownership of the union. It's not some secret society. You can go in and wander around. It's not, we're just the custodians of it that you've elected. It's not ours. And. And for the members to know, and that's what I always start every meeting off, you're the members. You pay my wages. You're my bosses. You tell me what you want done. And I think I want that follow through. I don't like this dictator sort of shit that used to happen before with unions. And, yeah, they're just some of the things I like to be remembered for. And just as long as they don't fucking call me an arsehole. <laughs> so they're going to do that anyway. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Hey, they John, already do now. So, yeah. John Saker, thanks for coming on Melbourne Calling. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks, Thank John. you very much. Thank thanks. you.